Let's go ahead and get started this hour on same-sex attraction and LGBTQ plus issues. Um, better pray and ask God to give us wisdom on this one, all right? It's uh, certainly something that you have to work on. Lord, we love you. Pray that you would give us wisdom as we think through these issues. We think about the people associated with these issues. These aren't issues. They're people. It's uh, it's not a political group. It's not many things. It's individuals in the image of God who are struggling, some of them with deep-seated trouble. And just pray that you'd give us wisdom as biblical counselors to know how to help, to know how to approach. Lord, we, we ask that you would give us mercy, hearts full of compassion um, for those that are struggling. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when we think about same-sex attraction, there's I'm, I have a series of questions, and in fact, there are a lot of questions in this talk. Um, and so we're going to answer the questions for you, but I think it just gets us pointed in the right direction. Here's the first question. Why is why is this an issue? Why is this an issue and what's the difference? Right? What's the difference? And we're talking about the difference between same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Right? What is the difference between the two? And so the first thing here, it's not underlined for you. You just have a blank to fill in. Same-sex attraction is misplaced desire for the same sex. Now, there's a number of things we need to talk about. Um, when we talk about same-sex attraction, that is typically, you could use the same word, same-sex orientation. Right? Orientation and attraction are very similar. Now, if you go to the APA, uh, in other words, psychology would define it this way. It's an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attraction to men, to women, or to both sexes. Sexual orientation also refers to a person's sense of identity based on those attractions, related behaviors, and membership in a community of others who share those attractions. All right, so um, when we think about same-sex attraction, it just basically is saying, I am attracted to somebody, possibly of the same sex or both sexes, right? So by, you could have someone that's that struggles in that. So same-sex sexual attraction, same-sex emotional attraction, right? There is... You could say you're same-sex attracted and not have any desire to have sex with, the, uh, with, the, with another individual of the same biological sex and gender. You could just say, I'm emotionally attracted. Um, and there's a same-sex community that people are often attracted to. All right, so when we think about same-sex attraction, we're talking about a rather large group. You say, how does gender fit into that? Uh, we can talk about it as we go along. Um, right, Gender is a whole different thing. And then not just simply gender at this point. Right, We were talking about fuzzies. and um, right, it is, It's a different world. There's a... Right, we live in... We don't live in Mayberry. We live in Branson. But it's not far from Mayberry, I think. Um... Ozark, Missouri is a sleepy town. It's really a, a simple town. It's hometown values. It's the stuff that you kind of like raising your children there. Probably a lot, a lot like some places here in Texas. And and right in our fifth grade, I was told my son's in fifth grade, but I was told by somebody today that we have a group of fuzzies, right? Kids who who are um, attracted to animals, right? And so, and would identify with certain animals and boy, that really gets into some weird stuff. What, fifth grade, you don't anticipate that. Um, 
So if that's true in Ozark, Missouri, how much more true is it in other places? So same-sex attraction is just one way to talk about this larger issue. Um, as, as you know, LGBTQ plus just continues to plus, right? It's more and more stuff there. Look at number two then. Homosexuality refers to a commitment to a homosexual lifestyle. So when you're talking specifically about homosexuality, right, that doesn't mean every person you talk to understands the definitions, but most people you talk to understand it specifically, even in your mind, if you don't understand it specifically, if that makes sense. When someone says, I'm homosexual, what they're saying is, I am committed to that lifestyle. Right? It is more than just, when you say you're homosexual, you're not saying you're same, simply same-sex attracted. Right? There's more to it. Homosexual is the next level. It's the next step. Um, so do you, under, do you understand the difference? If I'm attracted to the same sex, right? there's any number of Christians who say, well, I'm same-sex attracted, but I live celibate. I don't do anything with that attraction. Well, that's different than the person who says I'm homosexual. They're saying, I am committed to this lifestyle. Right? I'm committed to the community. So that would be the difference between number one and number two. So the question that we have to wrestle with as biblical counselors, is same-sex attraction a sin? I think that's a legitimate question we have to be able to answer biblically. Um and you would ask, is being tempted by same-sex attraction sin? Now, you may have an immediate answer. Let me just give you, let me just, just throw in a couple, right, that's, we say in the country, a monkey wrench. Uh, some people, when they say they're same-sex attracted, they're literally talking more about friendship and companionship than they are about a homosexual lifestyle. So if someone says, well, I have a same-sex attraction, I really do not enjoy being friends with the other sex at all. Right? So you get an 18, 19-year-old, and all their friends are, if it's a girl, all of her friends are girls, and she just has no interest really in developing a friendship with the man. Now, she's not thinking sexually. She's not saying, I want to go out and have a sexual relationship with a girl. But what she is saying is, I don't have... Sometimes people use it as simple as, well, all my friends are girls, and that's really... I don't even care to have a friendship with a guy. Right? So you said, boy, you're parsing your words. I'm No, I'm just saying that's the way people talk. Right? There's any number of individuals who just have no interest for a guy or a guy who doesn't have really any interest for a girl. So they may say they're same-sex attracted, but they're not even talking about the same thing as what a homosexual is talking about, and or even what others would say when they say, well, I'm same-sex attracted and I deal with it all the time. They're talking about something different than just simply friendship and community. So as a biblical counselor, what that means to us, and as a member of a local church, as grandparents and parents and uncles and aunts, right, as all those relationships we have, when someone says they're same-sex attracted, what does that mean? That means you're probably going to have to ask more questions. You can't just assume it's X when it could be something totally different. Now, in the world system right now, in the Christian, in the world of Christianity generally, right, broad, broad brush, liberals would say same-sex attraction, and now we're talking about actual sexual attraction. Same-sex attraction is not sin, right? So let's answer this question. Four different ways. A liberal would reject truth and would say it's not a sin. I've had a, a person come in. His dad is a, a missionary. And he said, clearly, it is not sinful, according to the Bible, to be same-sex attracted or to be a homosexual. So you ask him, well, what about these verses? Well, that's, that's just, that's not what those mean. Right, so he's just rejecting truth. That, that's what we would call that a theological liberal. That would be one position. A second position would be called a revisionist. 
Now, what is a revisionist? A revisionist reinterprets classic text to allow for homosexuality. So they would say something like, well, that's not saying don't have a relationship with another man when it says that don't do something that's out of the order in Romans 1. That means don't do something sexually excessive. It's talking about excess. It's not talking about same sex. Or they would say, uh, not living according to your own right. It says that there's inordinate desire. My brain's blank on the exact translation. Um, right? So then when they're saying don't do what's not natural use, right? And I'm talking about Romans 1, verses 26, 27, in that range. A revisionist would say, well, that means don't go against your sexual orientation because your sexual orientation is what's natural. So don't live different than what's natural because that would be sinful. So be you, right? Go with your own thing. Uh, Right? Don't be in relationships that aren't based on a loving commitment to each other. That would be another way to translate that. So that's called revisionist theology. The next one would be called neo-traditional. So it's just the new tradition. The neo-traditional would say, there's many people who are saved who would claim to have same-sex attraction. And there's nothing explicitly sinful about homosexual orientation as long as you don't act on it. That would be the neo-traditional view. Very, very popular right now. And again, the view would say there's nothing explicitly sinful about homosexual orientation as long as you don't act on it. Another way to say that is I I am same-sex attracted but celibate. Right, I'm not doing anything with it. So it'd be on the opposite side, it would be like someone else who says, well, I uh, am attracted to the other sex. I'm not married, but I don't, I live godly, right? I live, I don't, I live pure. It's really the opposite. It's the exact opposite of that other than it's same sex attracted. But they would say, so just live a pure lifestyle. It's okay to be attracted. You just need to live pure. And then the traditional is the fourth answer to that question. The traditional would say both a a homosexual or same-sex attraction or a homosexual orientation, they both at the desire level are wrong and at the behavior level are wrong. That would be the traditional view, a traditional theological view. So those are the that's the landscape, right? So when when you're talking to someone and and they're talking about this issue, they're going to generally fall kind of in one of those four camps or some measure of those four camps. What that means for us is you just need to know there's a lot of people who are in the church today who would say, especially under 35. Let's let's even get more specific. If you have kids that are in a secular university that are in your church, more than likely, they're going to be probably neo-traditional in their theology. They're going to say, listen, people are same-sex attracted. It's just who they are. Nothing wrong with it. As long as they don't dishonor God, right? it's just part of life. That's, that is, would be very a very common statement. Living in a college town. But really, I hear it in high school. I hear it with high schoolers as, as much as, as college students. Right? It's what they get on YouTube. It's what the, right? It's what the world says. Uh, the world, of course, would be, it's not a sin, but the world of neo-evangelicalism, pardon me, uh, really is, the world of evangelicalism, I should say, is really more neo-traditional, I think, than traditional the more, I would say, the traditional view is becoming a narrower and narrower view. Number four then. How does intersex play into this this discussion, if it does? 
Now, what is intersex, right? That might be what you're saying. What is intersex? That means that you have someone born and you can't tell at the physiological level if it's a boy or a girl, right? If it's a male or a female, maybe I should say. Um, in the Bible, we call those people eunuchs, right? That's the way that's translated. But you have some people at the genitalia level. When they're born, you can't tell uh, because of a gene defect, right? It's either XX or XY. Um, well, sometimes there's a third letter, and that is going to change, potentially, uh, the way the body looks. And so we would call those people intersex. And so does that, how does that play here? I'm going to suggest it, it really isn't as big of an issue as it used to be. Right before, by, before they could do gene testing, when you had a child that you didn't know, it really there was a sense of parents had to make a decision, right? How we're going to raise this particular child? Does this most like a boy or most like a girl, right? And there may be a, an issue of where they've been created through their, right? Just simple a gene mutation of one kind or another, where. Uh, it was impossible to tell. And so a eunuch, again, in the, in the Bible, the word eunuch is used for that. You had a eunuch by birth, right? So that's talked about in the Bible. That's an intersex person. You don't know if it's a person. Not really sure, boy or girl, but they just have no reproductive ability. Um, then you had a eunuch... Uh, Right, a, someone who was forced to be a eunuch. So that would mean that that usually those would relate to men who were castrated in the Bible. So they they would do those with slaves, right? So they would be called eunuchs. When you look at Daniel and the three Hebrew children uh, in their story of all those that were taken out of Babylon, they made those eunuchs. So that would be by force. And then you had, the Bible also talks about eunuchs by choice. And basically, that would be someone who is committing to, um, that's someone who's committing to a lifestyle of not going to pursue a sexual relationship uh, for one reason or another, in honor of the Lord or to serve the Lord. This person's going to choose not to follow that. But the real word intersex, that relates to someone with um, that at the genitalia level, you can't tell whether what biological sex he or she is. But because we can do gene testing, right, we can know now, right? It is possible to know is this a boy or a girl, even if the genes are wrong, or even if the genes have created a physical abnormality, you still know if it's a male or a female. Next question then. So how do you begin to serve someone with same-sex attraction? Let me suggest a number of answers, three specific ones. Here's the first one. We must consider, that's two of them come up, we'll do both. But first one, we must consider the atmospheric conditions, atmospheric conditions in the church. What are we talking about? We're talking about what is the spirit of the church? Atmospheric conditions. Right now, I've received a warning earlier. My son is having a, a bunch of his friends wanted to come over tonight, so they're having a, a bonfire in the backyard, and they're, they're going to do some, play some games and listen to some music. And so they're doing that. My watch keeps buzzing me because all my my cameras are saying hey there's movement in your yard yes lots of movement um, and so they're there right now but i received a an alert earlier that ozark is under a red flag warning tonight which means you're not really supposed to be burning outside they don't it's not a burning band but they are saying be very very careful so I had to call my son and say, hey, bub, it's a red flag warning. That means don't set that entire bonfire off at once. 
start a small fire and then start adding. Now it's in the 40s in Ozark, right? I walk outside here and it's still hot. Uh, in where I live in Ozark, Missouri, it's probably about 43, 44 degrees right now or in that, somewhere in that ballpark. We're in the middle of fall. It's gorgeous this time of year. Um, so they'll have a small fire and they'll continue to build it where they probably would have started with a big fire and continue to build it. The difference is because the atmosphere conditions. We got about 30 mile an hour winds today and about 15% humidity with leaves everywhere, right? That's a perfect opportunity to burn a garage down or a building or a house or any number of things. So the atmospheric conditions are ripe for a fire this evening at my house. And with all those kids, who knows? I've already said, Lord, if, if it looks like there's a fire in my, I'm just going to ignore my watch. I'm not even going to pay attention. I'll let my wife call me. Right, so atmospheric conditions. So the, here's our question. What's the atmospheric conditions in your church? Now, I would suggest to you that many churches have an atmospheric condition where you're going to have a hard time working with anybody who's same-sex attracted or homosexual. Male, homosexuality, lesbianism, whatever you want to call them. Call it. Um, Right there's it happens less, but right I've heard pastors in the middle of their sermon talk about use slang language, queer and fag and faggots and all kinds of terms. I've heard that over the years. Right, that's just unacceptable to talk that way. But often over the years has been said by pastors and in in whatever effort, right? It's ungodly way to talk. Uh, or people in the church just have that attitude, right? It might, be, it might be the way people talk. Even if it doesn't come from the pulpit, it's in the pew, right? And so in the, in the teenagers, or in the youth, right? It's, again, there's so many different things we could talk about here. But right, if you have a very large, most of the, your youth in your church, if they're in a public school, they're not going to be, they're going to have a high level of tolerance because that's the message of the school systems, right? But if you're in a church that is 50% or more homeschool, you may have a group of those homeschoolers that that it's the opposite and they may have a really negative uh, attitude and they may see someone that they think is same-sex attracted and say things that are unkind, at least to each other, well, then what happens? You have somebody in the church who's struggling with same-sex attraction, but they would never ask for help from anyone because they see the atmospheric conditions. All right, so we have to overtly, as a church, deal with it, in my opinion. Number two, we must consider the worldviews of those in the church toward those struggling with same-sex attraction. Right? How do people respond as individuals to those who are struggling? Do they just say, knock it off, cut it out? Right? Do, are they willing to listen? Most of the people that come to you, are, and that's why we've got the next section, the voices of same-sex attraction, most of the people that come to you will say, I never chose this. Now there's a lot we could say about that. Most of it, I would suggest, is learned. If you've read Counseling the Hard Cases book, I have a chapter in that book uh, where I counseled a guy named Jason. And it's specifically about homosexuality. And in that particular chapter, we, I talk about this issue uh, what I've learned through counseling lots of people is that most homosexual behavior is not innate, it's learned. So the sound of the voice, the way someone walks, a lot of that is studied, observed, and imitated. The, I would almost say, I don't want to say all of it, I've not counseled every person, but the vast majority of it. I've had counselees tell me, oh yeah, I've... I just listened, I watched, and I imitated. 
Um, but to the extent that, right, the, the story of the book that I was studying about, this guy named Jason, he can walk into a coffee shop and within 30 to 45 seconds, topside a minute, if it's the size of a Starbucks, he knows every person in the room that is same-sex attracted and or homosexual. Right? They, he can pick them out, and they do. Right? They walk into places, and and I don't know what he's looking for. Right? I didn't say, oh, tell me what that is. I, I don't need to know what that is. Right? But it's reality to him. Uh, a term they used. I think it's a, a right. If someone that's homosexual says it, they can say it. I'm not going to say it. Right. So but I'll tell you the term, but I will not use it in in actual sentences. But they call it a gaydar. Right. So man, I can just walk into a place and I know who's gay. Right. And um, again, that's not for me to use that term. Number three. We must consider the possible struggles of fellow Christians in our churches. Right? We're unwise if we don't believe there are teenagers, there are college students, maybe even adults who struggle in this area. Uh, and so we have to be aware of that. So the question then, how do you begin to serve someone with same-sex attraction? Look what that, the answer I basically have given you. I didn't give you answers. I just said we have to consider three things. What's the condition of our church? What's the specific attitudes of individuals in our church toward those who struggle? And what is, it, what is the possibility that there are some in our church who are struggling? So you say, where do we begin? We begin by thinking about people. Right? We begin with our own attitude. We begin with our own spirit. I've, been in, I've known of churches, certainly, over the years, that there's no one would ever dare suggest they struggled with this sin because they would get ran out of the church, ostracized, considered weird. Right? So we want to think through that. Let's talk about for a minute the voices of same-sex attraction. Let me give you some specific quotes. You don't have to write anything down unless you hear something that you want to, but I'm going to give you several. One person said, I came to the conclusion it's something God doesn't desire, but it was still a desire ingrained deeply in my heart. Think of the trouble they're in, right? The constant... Uh, angst if they say i think god doesn't want it. in fact the the book by the book by uh hard cases where i wrote about jason jason says yeah i knew it was sin but if it's sin why did god make me this way i think that's a legitimate in serving that person it's a legitimate question we have to think through and answer another person would say i didn't understand why those desires were there if I wasn't allowed to follow through with them. Another one said, if it's wrong, why won't God take the desire away from me? Here's what another person said. Homosexuality, same-sex attraction, being gay, whatever you want to call it, has always shared the living room of my soul. Some seasons it's been a friend. Some seasons it's been a foe. But in every season, it's been persistently present. Whether I've loved it or hated it or enjoyed it or been pained by it, it's been here. It's always been right here with me. Coming to Jesus didn't change that. What powerful words they used. In the living room of my soul. Another person said, embrace who you are and you'll find happiness. Another talked about, if this is what makes me happy and God wants me to be happy, then what's wrong with it? You say, well, that's not what God wants, but right, that's what the world says God wants. Right? It's the way a lot of churches talk about it as well. 
So when you hear the voices, right, it's one thing for us to say, well, this is our theology and, and this is, and be very specific about it, right? This is what we know and this is what it has to be. It's one thing to talk like that. It's a different thing when you actually sit down with people and talk to them. When you listen to someone explain to you, your child, your grandchild, your nephew, your niece, a counselee, when they're the one looking at you saying, this has always shared the living room of my soul. Right? That's what I, I want you to be able to talk to that person. This is my concern. Um, my concern is that a lot of Christians see those that struggle as an ideology not as a person. Almost as, well, you're just out to get my kids. You're one of those. You're that liberal who's trying to make my child homosexual. You're trying to... And I understand why people think that. I'm not saying I don't understand. I'm just saying I think lots of people do think that way. But as Christians, we can't. We have to think differently. We have to think consistent with the Bible. So what are some cautions then when you counsel? When you have conversations, here are some popular responses to same-sex attraction. This is what you're going to hear. People with same-sex desires often accept those desires as who they are, or in other words, they become their identity. This is just who I am. I identify as X. I just have same-sex attraction. That's what it is. I've heard many Christians say this. Many people who would say they're Christians also say this. This is just who I am. It's the way God's made me. Uh, I'm going to choose to live. I'm going to choose to live uh, holy. I'm going to choose to not follow it. But this is just who I am. That's not an uncommon statement. Here's the number, number two. The goal cannot simply be celibacy. The goal cannot simply be celibacy. If that's your goal, you'll lose. Right? You can't make a negative goal. The moment I adopt an identity and I say, well, this is my identity. I am or I have same-sex attraction. Right, that's I'm, I fit in that group. The moment I adopt that as my identity, even if I say, but I am committed to celibacy, at some point you get tired. Right, it's, at some point, um, let's just use an illustration of in the river. Right, if you have to paddle upstream, and upstream is celibacy, is godliness, is holiness. And you say, well, I'm just a downstream guy, but I'm gonna, I love Jesus and I'm going to do what it takes to go upstream. At some point, you quit paddling just because you get tired. It doesn't mean they have to fully commit to sin, but more than likely, we're not talking about if they are going to fail, but when they're going to fail. Right? I think that's why it's important we help them identify as something different than their sin. Right? We want to help them, and we'll talk about that in just a second in our counseling tips. So the goal cannot be celibacy. I think that's a poor goal. The goal has to be something much greater, something much grander. Number three, the goal must not also be heterosexual desire or marriage. Oh, we've got to be careful here. Friends, I've had people bring their children, their youth, their young, their middle school age boys just in an absolute panic. He was in the locker room. He gets an erection when he sees some of the other guys changing clothes. I think my son's broken. I think he's homosexual. And their goal essentially is Make him do the same thing for a girl. 
right? It's a, uh, it's almost what people would call, <clears throat> pardon me, in the psychological world, which this is not related to biblical discipleship, but it's called reparative therapy, right? Conversion therapy. Now that is a therapy that is in this, it's in the world of psychology, and it's been wholesale rejected by psychology, and. There isn't anything, there isn't any reason a biblical counselor would ever adopt reparative or convergent therapy, right? That's, uh, but I'm suggest there's lots of reasons we wouldn't adopt it, but this is the main reason because we're not trying to switch idols, right? The goal isn't, oh, well, you used to have lustful thoughts about guys and you're a guy, now have a lustful thought about a girl and you'll be just fine. Right? That's not a biblical goal. We have to reject that. Our goal isn't, well, I just wish he would get married. I just wish she would find a man. Right? We have to be very cognizant of that. All right, so what are some helpful conversation tips. I just said conversion to you. I almost read that conversion. Right, so what are, I'm thinking, I don't have conversion tips, surely. <laughs> I do not. What are some helpful conversation tips and concerns? Let me just give you a list here. First, all sex sin is the same. It is inordinate desire. You've got to get your heart right on that. Because... Many of us would go to Romans 1 and say, no, homosexuality is worse than heterosexual sin. Jesus died for both. Absolutely the same at the heart level. It's inordinate desire. You're choosing something that does not honor God. So we can't make one worse than the other. But most Christians do. We have to be honest about it. Most Christians do, but we can't biblically. You say, but that is the example of Romans 1. And I would say you could have a lot of examples of Romans 1. No doubt homosexuality is an example in Romans 1. It's a demonstration of what it looks like to go down this toilet of sin. Right? This spiral of sin. Sin's degradation. Certainly includes homosexuality, but it includes a lot more than just homosexuality. right? But that is the example he used. So we, I don't think you can make the argument by silence. And well, just because that was the sin that he used, that is the worse than other sins. I don't think we can say that. At the heart level, all same sex, no fire yet. All, all sex is same. Number two. The heart of all sex sin is discontentment. That's the real issue. I would say that even transfers to the transgender debate when there's gender dysphoria. Right? That's all of it relates to I'm not content with God's plan. I'm not content with the way God's made me. I'm not content with the plan that God has for males and females. Right, so the sin, the issue is discontentment. I think if you can work on discontentment, you basically can help someone in a dramatic way. Right, it, you have to think through that James 1, 13 to 18 passage, one of the critical passages. Number three, freedom only comes when we finally get to heaven. Regardless of what our sins are that we're working with. Right? We will only be free from sin's domination and sin's presence when we get to heaven. I think it is a mistake to make victory. I think it's a mistake to suggest to someone that victory is you'll never be tempted ever again in your life. I don't think that's victory, but that some biblical counseling books suggest that. Some of them, I've heard my friends say that. And I've disagreed with them. I just, I don't think, a lack of temptation is not victory. That's, I don't think you find that in the Bible. Theoretically, in a world where there was no presence of sin, you could say that's the victory. And when we get to heaven, 
Certainly that'll be the case. Uh, my goal isn't that they're never tempted again. My goal is that in any place where they're ever tempted, they respond godly to the temptation. That's victory, right? I wanted to find victory that way. Whatever we do with the issue of same-sex attraction, we must also do with heterosexual desires. We can't treat one differently than the other. And again, I think that comes back to the atmospheric conditions of the church. In some churches, that's just simply not the case. And with some Christians individually, the number two in the other section. Number five, in our overall conversations, we must minister with the story of God's redemption in Christ in mind. Right? So the Bible's story of redemption is creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. We, are, we know what's perfect. That was creation. We know about the fall. And we're living in a world that's fallen. Right? It's... it's suffers under the curse of depravity. And we're seeking to see people redeemed, that is saved, and then live redeemed, sanctified. But that's the, that's the uh, challenge of life. And we'll only ultimately see complete victory and glorification. But I think our counselees need to understand life in light of the general character of what's going on, the general storyline. Number five. There's two number fives in your notes there. So 5B. We'll make it number six on the board. We must remember God's goal. God's goal is bringing glory to God, not congruence or comfort or happiness. And you, you may say, what's the word congruence? Congruence is... When you, uh, when you don't have discord in your soul about your sex, either your sex practice or your gender, right? Gender dysphoria, if you're familiar with that term, it's when the, you have one gender and you feel like you should be a different gender, right? That would be called gender dysphoria. Gender congruence would be what you are and what you feel are the same. But the Bible doesn't say congruence is the goal. The Bible doesn't say that comfort is the goal or happiness is the goal. None of those. Those may be blessings in instances, but they're certainly not the goal. We must speak truth lovingly with all humility and gentleness. We can never... You say, but God's anger is toward this sin. Yes, but our anger should not be toward this sin. God has enough anger toward it. We speak truth and love. We may have to express God's anger, but it can't be our anger. James 1 says, our anger does not produce the righteousness God requires. And so therefore, our anger is not helpful here. We need to be humble and gentle and patient. Okay, so what are some key biblical issues? Let me give you some of those. First, an issue of identity. I've already implied that in what I said to you. The Christian is in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old has gone. Behold, the new has arrived. And so it's an issue of identity. We must help this person think saved. Not think as same-sex attracted, think as gay, think as any other thing. They need to think saved, right? It's an issue of identity. I would say the same thing in relationship. I don't want someone saying, hi, I'm Kevin and I'm an alcoholic. I want them believing, understanding, and living consistent with, hi, I'm Kevin and I am in Christ, Right, that, that it's a mindset, it's an identity. In Christ changes all identities. Right? Colossians, we either I read it in the other room or I read it in here earlier. I can't remember which. I think I read it in here earlier. But remember what Colossians 3 verse 11 says? When you're renewed, that's verse 10. 
There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian nor Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Right? You are 100% in Christ. And that's true for the person who is enslaved to alcohol or drugs or thinks differently than what the Bible teaches about sex. What about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11? There is a transition that takes place upon salvation. Notice it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Right? So that handles, that deals with both sides of the aggressive partner and the passive partner. Right? They're both included in that text. So, it says they what? Verse 10, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So someone who is vocationally gay, and these are vocational terms, they say this is who I am, this is what I do, and that's their identity. That person, according to this text, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, I had that young guy, I told you about him earlier, the missionaries. son that missionary son said i am gay and this is just who i am and this is what i do and god doesn't care and if you tell me that i don't believe those verses in the bible and so i had him turn here when we were talking and i said well this is what i'm concerned about i'm concerned i had him read it we picked out the two terms homosexual and sodomites and then we went to verse and said they will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, I'm concerned for your soul. I'm concerned that if you died, you would go to hell because you've identified vocationally, this is who I am and this is what I do. That suggests you're not saved because verse 11 says, and such were, past tense, some of you. But now what? You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. And so, I think that's a clear verse that we need to help them think through. Number two, it's an issue of pressure-filled circumstances. An issue of pressure-filled circumstances. So, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There's no temptation that's overtaking you, but such as is common to man. I think almost all translations translate it temptation. It's the word parosmos. It means pressure-filled circumstance the same word you get in James 1 when it's translated trial and temptation over and over. So pressure-filled circumstances are common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the next statement. Pressure-filled circumstances are meant to grow you in Christ. So we could have someone who does have some kind of pressure. Could be biological could be any number of things. Right? They may have genes that are different. Even if that were the case, for a particular individual, all that means is they have pressure. But that pressure, what, isn't to be succumbed to. That pressure is to help them grow in Christ. Right? That's the whole purpose of parosmosis. Pressure-filled circumstances cannot make you sin. James 1.14 God doesn't tempt you, neither does he, neither is he tempted. So you are only sin when you are carried away by your own lust and enticed. Pressure-filled circumstances are shared in every way with Christ. I think it's important to understand the word in Hebrews 4, in 14 to 16. We're going to go into overtime just a minute. I know this is our last session. We'll go into overtime just a minute or two. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He didn't start on time, so. Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points... 
tempted as we are yet without sin. What is that word tempted? It's the same word in James. It's the parosmosis. Jesus wasn't enticed to sin because there was nothing in his heart to entice him to sin. But he went through the same pressure that we do. Right? If you think about Genesis, right? Adam and Eve, they saw it was... They, uh, they saw it as something good to eat, the fruit, pleasant to the eyes, and something that would make them wise. I think in, he, in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, when we have the temptations of Jesus, and Satan, the, the devil offers Jesus three opportunities. I'm going to suggest to you, in my, in my thinking, that those categories are categorically the same as what happened in Genesis chapter 3. When you get to 1 John chapter 2, when it says that all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the uh, what lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Again, I think you can put these things together quite naturally. That includes those uh, categories. And maybe even, the, what I've most recently thought is probably even it's a little bit harder, but I don't think it's out of realm of possibility. In James 3, when it says wisdom from below is first earthly, sensual, and demonic. I think those may fit those same three categories. So when it says that Jesus was tempted, that means that, that the devil offered Jesus all the categories of temptation that we go through. The same ones that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10. And in each one of those instances, Jesus demonstrated his righteousness, which is what Hebrews also teaches. But for the fact that we're talking to someone, we have to help them understand, no, Jesus shared the same pressures you do. And he demonstrated righteousness. And now he can give you what? Grace and mercy. From the throne. We have to depend on Jesus. Number four. What if it's an issue of desire? Number three, I should say. What if it's an issue of desires? Let's think through this for a minute. All our desires should honor God. Psalm 19, 14. One of my favorite verses. If it's inner man, no matter what's going on, I need to honor the Lord. Desires are what make us sin. James 1 and Matthew 12. Pardon me. Desires are what make us sin. Behavior always follows desires. That's what I should say. Right? So a desire is what is the initiator of sin. And that follows by behavior. Clearly, the Bible teaches that some desires can be sinful. And for sure, Galatians 5 teaches desires have been crucified as part of the flesh. I think that's a hope-filled verse related to desire. The Galatians 5.24 is past tense and it refers to the, when you were saved. The power of your desire was crucified. Such that if you give in to desire now, it's not because... It's not because it's overpowering you, but it's because you choose to let it overpower you. I use this illustration... Uh, my son and a boy named Benton in our church, he's my son's age. The two of them, when they were three, four, five, that range, they would, on Sunday mornings, they would come and tackle me. Well, now, they would get on both legs, and I would walk, and I could still walk. There was a particular place that they would do it. And I would walk probably another 60 feet with them on my legs, and as I walked, I would just drag both of them. 
Right? They were little boys. They loved to come tackle me on Sunday mornings after church. Well, eventually, about 60 feet or so, between maybe 70 feet, I would fall over. Now, why would I fall over? Not because they actually had tackled me, but because I gave in to what they were doing. Now, was it a drag for all those 60 feet? Yes, literally. Right? I was dragging them. It didn't make it easy to run. Or it didn't make it even easy to walk. But I did not have to fall. The fact that I was tackled, I allowed them to tackle me. But at the same time, there was pressure on my legs. I use that illustration with, with people to try to help them understand this issue. Right? You have these desires, and maybe you have a desire toward the opposite sex. That desire may be there. It may be rooted deeply in your heart. But that doesn't mean that you have to give in to it. Because if you're a believer in Galatians, you're, the, power of your, the power of the desire has been broken. Right? It's been crucified. Listen to Galatians 5.24. It says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. What? With its passions and desires. And again, that's past tense. So when you get saved, the power is broken. Abstain then from the passions of the flesh which war against the soul. I love that verse. Abstain from those. In fact, you might jot down Romans 13, 14. What does it say? It says, uh, do not uh, what? Uh, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That would be a similar thing as 1 Peter 2.11. And the issue is, it takes a lot of humility because the heart is so wicked, who can trust it? So when we read through the issue of desire, I think there's a number of questions that are left unanswered, but for sure it requires humility. And dependence upon the Lord. Alright, number four then. What about an issue of repentance? The first one is the joy of following Jesus. The joys of following Jesus are everlasting and complete. It is the pleasure of fearing and knowing God that truly satisfies. Not sex. Right? It's knowing and fearing God. That's what truly satisfies. You can choose sex, but you're not choosing what, as a Christian, truly satisfies. Notice this one. Lay aside anything that hinders us from running the race with endurance. Now, not simply lay aside sin, although that's mentioned... Right, Hebrews 12, we don't want to miss that issue. It says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher for our faith. So there are sins that we need to put off, but there are also weights. And possibly relationships with the same sex, even though not sinful, if it's at the friendship level. Right? There are certain relationships that may need to be put off. So like my friend, we just determined it was not wise. It's not sinful to go to a coffee shop. But for him, he needed to stay away from coffee shops. Because it was a weight. Not sin. But it was a weight that could easily keep him from enduring well. So we need to lay aside those things. Pray for God to forgive you and to help you honor him. I love Psalm 19. It describes repentance at what? The, 
the most obvious sin level as well as the sins that you don't know, the secret faults, the desires in your heart. So God, just forgive me where I sin against you. I want to follow you. Put on Christ. I've already mentioned Romans 13, but we'll say it again here. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh and put off any kind of work of darkness. And the work of darkness that's listed in Romans 13, those are quite sexual in nature. And so we want to put those off as well. We're going to wrap up here in the next three minutes. Thank you for being patient. We started a few minutes late, so we'll just go a couple extra minutes. So what are some steps toward change? And these are very general, but let me suggest these four. One is repentance, right? That's where it has to start. They have to to wake up, is what it says in Romans 13. Right? Wake up. You need to pay attention. So that's repentance. Number two, living a life of holiness, righteousness, and godliness. Right? That's the way we put... That's the way we live. It says in Romans 13, it specifically says, living as if it's the day. Well, what is day kind of living? That's holy living. That's righteous living. The the Bible compares light and dark. So cast off, it says in Romans 13, cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Right? So there's light living. So that's holiness and righteousness and godliness. And that's something that you can practice. Again, many have facil- have practiced being homosexual. Right? They've paid attention to what the community suggests. Clothing styles, voice inflection. Well, just like they've practiced those things, they can practice godliness as well. Number three, making no provision for the flesh. That means you're going to say no to some things that for some will not be sinful, but for you makes provision for the flesh. So we're going to say no to those things. And then number four, we're going to put on Christ. Put on Christ has a lot of different looks. Some of them include, right, preaching the gospel to yourself. Being aware of your union with Christ, your identity as one of Christ. Understanding the realities of the gospel. So put on Christ. Let me suggest, can I give you one bonus thing? It's not in my notes, but I'll just share it with you real quick. You say, so in number one, it says to repent in that last slide. Let me just, why don't you jot down for repent, why don't you jot down um, Psalm 51. Let me give you a couple of words and specific verses. And we'll, we will stop with this. Psalm 51. <clears throat> uh, you say, what are the steps of repentance? Well, I think... I'm going to give you two different, two different things. One of them's Paul Tripp used some terms, and then in the text here, I made up some terms. I think the first thing is I acknowledge my transgressions. So acknowledging sin—that's the first step toward repentance. Paul Tripp would say that's consideration, right? That's the word he uses for it. I acknowledge my sin, or I acknowledge sin. Now in verse 4, it says against you and you only have I sinned. That's what I have called, number two, my second step is take responsibility. Why? Because we have lots of people say, well, you know, if sin happened, or yeah, I accept that that was sinful, but you don't understand, this is the way I was born, or but they don't take responsibility for it. So I think what David's doing here is he says, well, it's against you. I'm responsible. And he's so responsible, he says, and you only. Well, no, you sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. 
but David understands the responsibility. Paul Tripp would call that uh, confession. So consideration is the first one under his. Confession is the second one. <clears throat> All right, and then we go to verse 7. Actually, we'll just go verses 7 through 12. And let me give you this. My step, number three, is seek and pursue inner man change. Seek and pursue inner man change. Now, I say seek and pursue because most of us don't change on a dime. And it may take some study. It may take learning better. But seek and pursue inner man change. Now, what does Tripp call that? Tripp would say his fourth step is um, commitment. Right? You're making a commitment. And I'm calling that seek and pursue inner man change. And then beginning in verses 13 and following then, my fourth step is seek and pursue outer man change. Seek and pursue outer man change. And Paul Tripp calls that change. Right, so mine are acknowledge sin, take responsibility, seek and pursue inner man change, seek and pursue outer man change. I've Several years ago, Tripp uh, used the four C words and I thought, oh, those work perfect for what I already say is repentance. He would say, you want to consider, confess, make commitments, and then change. And he pencils in repentance, right? So for Paul Tripp, uh, I can't, I don't have it, uh, I don't have a whiteboard to demonstrate, but let me just show you on the wall here. So Paul Tripp uses this arrow like this. So this arrow goes backwards, and he would have the first two steps, consider and confess. And on the line that goes across, he writes repentance. And then he has an arrow that goes down, and that would be commitment and change. Right? So he says repentance is this place between consider, confess, commitment, and change. He calls that repentance. I am I the way I've I the way I see it is I think the entire thing is repentance. Yeah. Right? Because repentance is I'm accepting the way God thinks about it and I'm giving up the way I think about it. And that's going to result in some kind of action. Um, all right, let me pray for you. Thanks for being patient. We love you, Lord. Boy, these are tough issues. And as a church, we have failed miserably at times. Generally, maybe not the people in this room, but certainly generally. And we are under more pressure than ever to get it right, to speak well, to love well to point people to a marvelous, holy, righteous life in Christ that has true joy. And so, Lord, we pray you would give us the wisdom and the right voice to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.